there were some incredible storytellers in my family, and those storytellers, for me, were people writ large. They lived full and robust lives and did things which I consider courageous that no one will ever know about. And so that memory and, and that legacy is, is all around me. It also comes from the fact that as a woman and as an African-American, I'm also aware of things which I consider quiet acts of courage on the personal level with with friends and acquaintances that also will not make it into that mainstream. So rather than rail against it, I felt that the thing that gave me such sustenance as a young person growing up and reading was to discover that other people thought like I did, that they had fears, that they also wanted to learn a strange language that had nothing to do with their race or their gender, you know, that kind of thing, to know that you're not alone in those kind of passions is is one of the things that gave me such strength. And so I feel like when I'm writing, I am compelled to explore those intimate, very, very interior moments of humanity. That's poet and 2011 National Medal of Arts recipient, Rita Dove. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. A brilliant poet, as well as a committed advocate for the diversity and vitality of American literature, Rita Dove has dedicated herself to building popular interest in poetry, to making it a part of people's daily lives. Rita Dove was not only the first African-American U.S. Poet Laureate, she was also the youngest when she was appointed back in 1993. She's also served as consultant to the Library of Congress and as Poet Laureate of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Since 1989, she's been teaching at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, where she holds the chair of Commonwealth Professor of English. But first and foremost, there's the artistry of Rita Dove's own poetry. She creates work that's equal parts lyricism, critique, and politics. Her subjects are wide-ranging, from Thomas and Beulah, a collection of poems loosely based on the lives of her maternal grandparents, which won the 1987 Pulitzer Prize, to her most recent book, Sonata Mulatica, which tells the story of an African-European violin prodigy in the 1800s. Yet all her work combines her deep understanding of history with her gift of conveying complex emotions through rich yet precise poetic language. Rita Dove has received far too many literary honors to mention, but here's a highlight reel. 22 honorary doctorates, the 1996 National Humanities Medal, the third annual Heights Award in the Arts and Humanities, the 2009 Fulbright Lifetime Achievement Medal, and this week, the 2011 National Medal of Arts. I was lucky enough to speak with Rita Dove in the late autumn from the studios at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Here's our conversation. First of all, Rita Dove, welcome and thank you so much. It's my pleasure. (laughs) You know, Rita, you wanted to bring poetry, or you want to bring poetry, into everyday life. What first drew you to poetry? Hmm. Well, you know, I was first drawn to poetry, actually, through the stories that relatives of mine would tell at picnics and things like that, Fourth of July and things like that, because 
There were some incredible storytellers in my family, and even though they might tell the story again and again, they knew how to change it up a bit with rhythm and with emphasis so that I began to understand how powerful language, if used artistically, can be. I really think that was my introduction to poetry through the ear. Now, when I was a young kid, when I first began to read, I started to roam the bookshelves at home. And there was a book on the shelves, an anthology of poetry, Lewis Untermeyer's Treasury of Best Loved Poems. And this looked kind of interesting because there were short pieces in there. So I started reading those poems. No one told me that they were difficult. No one said you should read this person and not this person. And so I was allowed to kind of wander through that garden and just pick the flowers that I liked. And because of that lack of fear, that lack of intimidation, I think my entry into poetry felt like the most natural thing in the world. And that's why I really want to bring that feeling to other people, because so many people are terrified of poetry. Why do you think that is? Well, I do think it is because we have not been exposed to it very much. I mean, poetry is one of the last things that gets taught in school, and it's usually the AP class, okay, now we do our poetry unit. And if you think about it, poetry is is describing the indescribable. Poetry actually encompasses those most interior moments that we have when we're struck speechless because some kind of emotion has rendered us so. And if that is the case, then of course it's going to be really difficult to write and describe a poem in an essay because the best words have already been used. So it's already a, a daunting kind of task if we haven't been exposed to it at an early age, if it hasn't been something that has been a, on a companion to us. So I do think that fear comes from suddenly being thrust into this, okay, now we're going to study poetry, and the students think there's one answer, i, I got to get this right, there's one interpretation, because, of course, from the teacher's side, they have to quantify their teaching and prove that they have taught this poetry. Poetry doesn't lend itself very well to quantification. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I think of myself as somebody who really dwells in fiction, but mm-hmm. at times of extreme experience, whether it be grief or joy, it's, it's lines of poetry that immediately come to my mind. Because poetry is such a distillation of experience and emotion, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think your experience is one that happens with many people. When I was Poet Laureate, I would get letters from all sorts of people, not just people with higher education or doctors or lawyers or things like that, but all sorts of people who would write in and invariably they'd begin their, their letters with, I don't know much about poetry or... I don't understand poetry, but... And then they would describe an experience where poetry helped them. And I say, well, they understand poetry very well. It's just like anything else. You have to be in the same room with it for a while. Also, because poetry deals with words, and we use words every day, of course, just in natural discourse. That's a different language. And yet we think that because poetry is in English, that we should understand it immediately. When we listen to music, we know just kind of 
without anyone telling us that this is a different way of communication. It's a different language used for communication. And we put ourselves in that mode. And we don't think anything of being moved by a piece of music. We don't worry about getting it right because we get it in our own way. So that's another one of those little stumbling blocks in, in, in the way of understanding or appreciating poetry. Yeah, and I also think poetry wants time for the reader to be with it, just yes. to be with it. If I had my druthers, if I could plan the entire educational system, what I would do is say that every class, starting at kindergarten, should end every day with a poem. And the the teacher would simply read the poem aloud and then send the kids home. No conversation, just let it hang in the air. And if that were done every day or even every other day, after a while, students would begin to ask questions. They'd begin to argue. They'd begin to say, hey, we want to hear that one again, or what was that, or we didn't like that. And poetry becomes a part of your life. You studied music. You studied classical music. You played the cello. You played the viola gambo. Do you think that playing an instrument had an impact on your writing? I'm sure it did. I can't tell you exactly what kind of influence it was, but I know that I grew up with an equal passion for playing music and for writing, and they seemed somehow part of the same mix. I played the cello, and I think also that having an instrument where I had to basically wrap myself around the instrument was, was wonderful because the sound almost seemed to come from inside of me, even though it was being bowed across the instrument. It vibrated through my body. I remember that very distinctly. And to me, the human voice is as much a string instrument <laughs> you know, as it is a wind instrument because we go across those vocal cords and you can feel that. So I, I think that the idea that language is something that is physical, is something that poetry understands and employs deeply. In your last book, Sonata Mulatica, you really explored music quite explicitly, as well as a history that's hidden from most people. Tell us a little bit about it. Who is George Bridgetower? George Bridgetower was a prodigy, mixed-race violinist who was born in 1780, lived a full 80 years, actually. And his claim to fame, or the fame that was meant to be his and then wasn't really, was that he had uh, gone to Vienna as a young man in his 20s, met Beethoven, and Beethoven composed a sonata for him, a violin sonata, which he premiered with Beethoven at the piano. And Beethoven had dedicated to, to him, and then they got into an argument over a girl. That's all we know. And Beethoven destroyed the dedication. And uh, what we know as the Kreutzer Sonata really should have been called the Bridge Tower Sonata. But what, what fascinated me about this story was that there was this mixed-race person who lived and thrived during this time in England and in Vienna, all across Europe. His father called himself an African prince. His mother was born somewhere in modern-day Poland. And my question was, how did he come to be, and how did he live, and why don't we know any more about him? And that began my quest. How did you discover him, Rita? Mm, oh, gosh. Well, there are other African and mixed-race classical musicians 
of that era in various countries, but I really didn't know much. I didn't know about Bridge Tower. What happened was my husband and I were watching a movie. We were relaxing, watching a movie called Immortal Beloved, which is a biopic about Beethoven. And it's not too bad. It really had some very moving scenes in it. And in one of these scenes, Beethoven was walking through a room of musicians. He's going deaf and he's anguished. And he walks through and, and goes into another room to be alone for a moment before he comes out to meet these musicians who want to play his music. But as he passes through that room, one of the musicians happened to be a black man with a violin under his arm. And I was stunned. I said, where did he come from? This doesn't make any sense. And so after the movie was over, I went up to my desk and I Googled black violinist Beethoven and up came one single, very sparse entry on George Bridgetower. And with basically the information that I gave you, I mean, not even that much. It didn't even have the African prince part, but I was both astonished and ashamed that I did not know of him. It just seemed like such an amazing accomplishment. And to have no knowledge of him whatsoever struck me as as really a a great loss. And so I, I didn't intend to write a whole book of poems about Bridge Tower. I simply was haunted by the story and I wanted to find out more. So I just started looking and I began making some notes, but I had no idea what I was going to use them for. And It took about a year before I finally realized what really interested me was to get into the heads of the people who were living at that time. And there was a whole marvelous cast of characters from Beethoven to Haydn to the King of England and all sorts of people. And I thought, what did they see when they looked at him? What did they think when they heard him play? What was this relationship with Beethoven like? And that set me, of course, into the field of of imagination. And at that point, I realized I had to do something with this. And poetry seemed to me to be the right way to do it. Can you read a, a passage from Sonata Melodica for us? Sure. Well, let me say that when I did begin trying to write poems, I realized that one of my biggest fears or stumbling blocks actually was to write in the persona of Beethoven. Because Beethoven is, of course, that marble bust on the piano that we all labored under. You know, he's an icon, so how how dare I presume to write in his voice? So the first few poems that I wrote were actually Beethoven's poems. And so I'll read you one of his. This is one where he is He's going deaf. He has gone off into the country to recover, according to doctor's orders, sent him out to the fresh air, thought that would cure his deafness. And he's has just decided to come back to Vienna. It's right before he meets Bridge Tower. Ludwig van Beethoven's return to Vienna. Three miles from my adopted city lies a village where I came to peace. The world there was a calm place, even the great Danube no more than a pale ribbon tossed onto the landscape by a girl's careless hand. Into this stillness I had been ordered to recover. The hills were gold with late summer. My rooms were two, plus a small kitchen situated upstairs in the back of a cottage at the end of the Herrengasse. From my window I could see onto the courtyard where a linden tree twined skyward, leafy umbilicus canted toward light, warped in the very act of yearning and I would feed on the sun as if that alone would dismantle the silence around me. 
At first I raged. Then music raged in me, rising so swiftly I could not write quickly enough to ease the roiling. I would stop to light a lamp, and whatever I'd missed, larks flying to nest, church bells, the shepherd's home toward evening song, rushed in, and I would rage again. I am by nature a conflagration. I would rather leap than sit and be looked at. So when my proud city spread her gypsy skirts, I re-entered, burning toward her greater, constant light. Call me rough, ill-tempered, slovenly. I tell you, every tenderness I have ever known has been nothing but thwarted violence, an ache so permanent and deep the lightest touch awakens it. It is impossible to care enough. I have returned with a second symphony and fifteen piano variations, which I've named Prometheus, after the rogue titan, the half a god who knew the worst sin is to take what cannot be given back. I smile and bow, and the world is loud. And though I dare not lean in to shout, can't you see that I'm deaf? I also cannot stop listening. That's Rita Dove reading her poem, Ludwig von Beethoven's Return to Vienna. It's from her book, Sonata Mulatica. That's so beautiful, Rita. Thank you. It reminds me so much of his Heiligestadt Testament. Indeed. And in fact, that's where the village was. That's where he had gone off. And I had read the Heiligestadt Testament in an effort to get into Beethoven's mind. And it was the springboard for that poem. You have, as you say, so many different voices in this book. It is really extraordinary how you manage to capture on such an intimate level figures that have been dead all these many years. Well, you said Beethoven was daunting, but you also have Haydn's voice and the Prince of Wales. Was that more daunting than, for example, the people in the audience the first night the Kreutzer was played, which was played by Bridgetower? <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah. Uh, the people in the audience weren't taunting at all, actually. It's very interesting. Once once I leapt over that huge hurdle of Beethoven and, and realized he was a man like everyone else, he was a human being who was grappling with one of the greatest losses of the world, you know, the loss of, of an essential part of his talent. And once I realized that I could empathize and, and think along with him and presume to tell his story from the inside out, then... It was almost a relief to go into every to other characters, and in the end, I know when I was finishing book, I missed them. <laughs> I missed all of these characters: the Prince of Wales, who only wanted beauty, and Haydn, who was like everybody's dream of a father somehow. And and I missed them, and so there's a whole little group of epilogues in the back. But I did play this sonata over and over again, and as you mentioned, I I was trained in classical music, so. I would look at it sometimes with a score, and I realized that it was extremely avant-garde for its time. It doesn't behave like a sonata. It's not a violin playing along with the piano in the background. There's actually a give and take. There's a call and response that goes on at the beginning.
once I listened to it with the ear of someone who was hearing it for the first time at that time. The audience reactions were crystal clear. I loved that part of the book. <laughs> oh, thank you. Can we hear a little bit of that part? Sure. You would think that I would begin with the um, concert, but of course it was one of the last things that I that I wrote about. I had a professor of writing once say that one should never write about music because it's it's just impossible to do, so of course I had to try it. But this poem is it's called Owl Garden, 7 a.m., and I'll just pluck a few little sections of it because basically it was an outdoor concert at 7 in the morning, and Beethoven's at the piano, as I said, Bridge Tower, was playing this brand-new sonata, and various people come for various reasons. So there are... I, I'll read to you, I'll just read the beginning three sections or so, uh, and then we can talk about them. Owl Garden, 7 a.m., Spectator 1. Heavenly, to escape the city's poisons and breathe honey, honey, honey. All praise morning's cathedral, the ranks of noble linden presiding. May we be privileged to pass through their green light and feathered fragrance with tipped hats and mute nods. Amen. The British Ambassador There goes Shabansik, huffing up the aisle in his entrepreneurial trappings. Dear God, the man expands weakly. Ah, the Archduke. And Prince Lopkowitz, poor soul, such an unsightly specimen, and feels just as miserable as he looks. I'd have ended it years ago, gone out like a man. Spectator 2 Curious beginning, solo violin, reminiscent of Bach, but wilder, a supplication. And the piano's reply is almost a lover's, a bird on a cliff returning its true mate's call. Child, he moves around too much. He's like a poplar in the wind. So that's the beginning of this poem, and it goes on for a while yet with different spectators and people who are responding to this strange situation. Everything is strange about it, right? You know, one of the things I, I had, I guess, intuited is that, as I mentioned, Beethoven was going deaf, and then you have to wonder how could he accompany this piece, especially one that was like a call and response. And and I realized that one of the things I did find out was that Bridge Tower was quite extravagant in his playing. He did move around like a poplar in the wind. And then I thought, for someone who was going deaf, to accompany someone like that would be a gift because he would watch his playing. You know, and so there was also, again, that, that physical quality. Throughout your career, you interweave history writ large and the history that's made with everyday living. And I, I find that so interesting. I'm thinking even back to your Pulitzer Prize winner, Thomas and Beulah. We're looking at the trajectory of their lives, but it's happening in the backdrop of the Great Migration, for example. So it's, there's that awning of the Great Migration, but the focus is on the way these two people are living their lives. Yes, I think that because I'm African-American, I was always hyper aware as a child that there was a mainstream and I needed to negotiate, let's say na navigate its waters. Um, 
that being said, the idea that there was a life that I was living as a child and growing up, and then there was a world out there that I was going to have to fit into was a rubric that I grew up with. So it always fascinated me. Where does the personal rub up against the writ large, or does it? And when you think about it, all of us actually live every minute of our lives with that dichotomy, more or less. I mean, listen to the news. We're driving down the freeway and and listening to the news and raging about it or not. But then at the same time, we're thinking about taking the dog out for a walk. So Mm -hmm. that has always fascinated me. And it ended up becoming one of the things that I keep returning to. Poetry has always struck me as one of the most paradoxical of the arts because I think of it as something that is very intimate and created in such a private place, but it also has a very public parallel life. (laughs) Juggling those two things, I would find it daunting myself. (laughs) I do too, though, I must say. And you're absolutely right. I think that so many poets, if they are not naturally shy, are naturally introspective. And if you are dealing with that deep introspection, it is completely paradoxical to stand up in front of people and read these poems about that. And yet, and yet, you know, that connection with the audience, or there's a real magic that happens when an audience feels like one brain remembering or thinking. We've all felt this, whether it's with poetry or with music or whatever, when you're in the audience and you're in your own world, but you also feel everybody else around you in that own world. That's an incredible magic. So it's the other side of poetry. What's daunting is to make that switch as the writer to write and to forget that the world is out there. And then at some point to say, okay, as Emily Dickens said, here's my letter to the world. And that's a, that's a tricky moment. Your most recent project is the Penguin Anthology of 20th Century American Poetry, which you edited. Yes, yes, I did. <laughs> you hear the sigh. Yeah, that was something to take on. You had to make some hard choices there. Very hard choices. You know, I, I agreed to do it because when, when Elder Rhoda of Penguin approached me and said that would I like to be the sole editor of this anthology of 20th century American poetry? And and in a flash in my head, I could see the trajectory of the 20th century in poetry. I just thought there is one. I mean, there is a sense that forms the century poetically. And it was as much a desire to bring that out to people as it was a desire to educate myself again, to go back and read all that stuff, to have the assignment to read the whole century again, that made me say, yes, I thought this will be good for me. And hopefully in the end, it'll be good for for other people as well. So I agreed before I could get cold feet and and then began the, the work. You know, most of it was really joy. It was just to be able to read everything I could get my hands on and say, okay, these are poems that I remember that I have been too busy, quote unquote, to go back to, but now it's it's my job. And so I give myself license to do that. It was, most of it was really delight. The hard part came at the end, having to make choices in the contemporary realm particularly, but also when the business end socks in, which is getting rights and permissions. And that was 
the depressing part, but the rest was real joy. Well, in your introduction, you really make it clear that you're providing both a cultural and a historical context for each poet so that it becomes this wonderful tapestry. Well, you know, I thought that I was given this unique chance to do that because every other anthology that been compiled during the 20th century didn't have the end of the century as the the framework and so they were compiled in the middle of everything in medias race but here i was i could say this starts in 1900 it ends in 2000 and i could say does the 20th century have a sense of itself and and i think that because it was also the end of a millennium that most of us tend to say, okay, the 20th century is now done and gone. We've put a lid on it. We've put the cap on and we've said, okay, and moved on. So now we can look back on it and be a little more objective. I also believe that poetry does spring out of life. It springs out of the life around us, the life remembered, the life imagined. And that's the impetus. That's the thing that's going to connect it to us. It's the thing that people tend to forget when they're afraid of poetry, that it actually comes from living, breathing matter. And to try to provide an anthology where you can see how that is connected, how these poems came out of the world in which they lived or in response to or reaction against the times in which they were engendered was something that I had the unique opportunity to do, given the the framework. That was Poet and 2011 National Medal of Arts recipient Rita Dove. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata, performed by Ida Handel and Ilya Eaton, used courtesy of VAIMusic.com. Special thanks to the folks at the studios at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. You can also subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, pianist and 2011 National Medal of Arts recipient, Andre Watts. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog. Or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.